I want to talk tonight about uh, giving compliments, which may sound like a peculiar lesson, but the reason uh, this lesson came about is I, I have read a lot about uh, from self-help literature. And I don't mean from the standpoint of simply trying to grow myself, though I try to get something from it. But a lot of times I, I read it because uh, I want to know where people are getting some of the garbage <laughs> that they're spouting. Where is this coming from, this pop psychology? And uh, one of the things that you see in a lot of literature that teaches you how to be more successful, whether it's how to win friends and influence people or seven habits of highly effective uh, people or, or things of that nature, is almost universally people say you need to speak kindly to people, smile, and, and compliment people. I was having a conversation with a fellow about that, about how universal that principle is, the need to, to sort of butter people up. And I thought, you know, I, I feel like the Bible doesn't, doesn't really encourage us to do that. And so I, I wanted to go to God's Word and see, is there, is there a place for that? Is there, is there something that it's echoing? Because I will say, there is something in self-help literature you'll find in good literature that stood the test of time. A lot of times it's just reflecting principles that have been there a long, long time, and they're just putting them in maybe more, more popular words. And so I opened up God's Word, and I don't want to open it up just to justify what I think is already right. If the whole world is telling us the best thing is to give everybody compliments, and God's Word says, don't, well, then let God be true and every man a liar. And so is that what God word, God's Word wants us to do? And I, I think what we'll find is not only do, is it what God's Word wants us to do, but but we'll find it's a very uh, effective practice in communicating with each other and building relationships with each other, which is something we talked a great deal about last night. I start maybe in a peculiar place in Luke chapter 17 and verse 10. Um, it says there, So to you, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That's the boat we are in before God, that even if we did everything we're supposed to do, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And so from the standpoint of deserving compliments, none of us, especially before God, ever will. I mean, we, we don't deserve for God to tell us, good job. We certainly don't deserve, well done, good and faithful servant. We just don't deserve it. And that's what, this, that's what this passage indicates. And it's a passage that I think, it, it, it should fall among the passages that we know where it is, and at least, the, at least the concept needs to be drilled into our minds as we increasingly find ourselves surrounded by such entitlement. And everybody thinks that they're so deserving of praise coming and going and participation trophies and, and all of those sorts of things. And, and here's God saying, if you did everything, you wouldn't deserve all that. And so, if we start from that premise, then I think we have an appreciation for when God does give compliments. He doesn't give them because we deserve them. And if we start from there, then that helps us understand about when we give compliments. Somebody says, well, I'm not going to compliment somebody for doing something that they ought to do. Well, then we'll never get compliments. Because there's not a good thing that we do that we oughtn't to do. And so... We need to think through that and think if that's really the stand that we want to take. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. From the very beginning, 
When God has found obedience, God has praised obedience. Even though we just read a place where God says, in essence, I don't have to. I'm not obligated to praise your obedience. I don't have to exalt the worthy slave or the obedient slave, rather. And yet he does. In Genesis 4 and verse 4, it says, Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. It doesn't just say that the Lord was placated or, or he had simply a, uh, a, uh, an, an attitude of, of just you've done what you're supposed to do, but he had regard for it. He held Abel in esteem. And that's something that we see repeatedly that God praises people and, and notices people and calls his historians, in this case Moses, to exalt those people in the scriptures because of their obedience. And this is true with people who are grossly imperfect. You know, when we think of Abraham, Abraham is a man who at the very beginning of his story in Genesis chapter 12, this, the part that, the beginning as far as we uh, see his story, He's called by God. He goes down and he's given those promises there in, in the promised land at Shechem. And then he heads down uh, to Egypt. And what's, what's the first thing that we see him doing but showing a lack of faith? Here's our father in the faith. And yet one of the things that sort of uh, stands out so much is this occasion in Genesis 12 where he lies or calls Sarah to lie to Pharaoh. Later it would happen again in Genesis chapter 20. I mean, the exact same scenario, only now with Abimelech. And he calls her again, go lie to him. And so we have a man who's certainly imperfect in his faith. And yet in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 16, God says this. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand, on which, uh, sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now here is God saying, I'm going to reward you so richly. Now none of us would look at that and say, well, it's because Abraham deserved it. I mean, God had to give it to him. No, he didn't. No, that's grace. That's mercy. And God saying, I'm so pleased with you. Is, is not God giving Abraham something he owes him? Even the very words, much less the actual blessings that would come along, are not required by God. And so I begin to think about that. I think about that in terms of my children and what I expect from them. And I can easily say so very often that when they've done well, they've really only done what I've asked them to do. And yet, if I want God's favor... Surely they want my favor as well. And it's right for me to say, you've done well. And it's right for me to give them gifts and good things because they're doing well, even though it may be imperfect and it certainly will. I want the same thing from God. And so I need to be aware of that and thoughtful of that. I think of some of the ways in which God tells people that He is pleased with them. And I think one of the most touching places where I think God tells a man he's pleased with him is over in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 12, 
God does say to men that He is pleased with them and, and shows them in so many ways. But here in Numbers chapter 12, He tells Moses in an extraordinary way. He tells him in a way that not only Moses gets to hear it, but everybody in the world gets to hear how much he thinks of Moses and by Moses' own hand. I don't understand all the nature of inspiration. I don't claim to understand exactly, precisely how that process worked, but I, I believe that those words come from God. I believe it uses the vocabulary of men, uses the minds of men. I don't think they go into a trance or something. And so I believe men are processing those words as they're writing them down. But I think those words come from God. And, and we could spend a whole hour just explaining and uh, improving that from Scripture. But can you imagine being Moses, taking God's inspired words and writing them down and coming to this? Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I'll tell you what, if that isn't inspired, then it's kind of catty. It's, it's a little bit uncouth for Moses to write that if that's his own words. But it's, it's, really, uh, it's really an impressive thing if Moses is writing down God's words. And as he's coming along and he's receiving that, that message from God, that inspiration of God, and he realizes God wants him to write something about himself. I want you to tell everybody, you're the most humble man I've ever seen. And that's God's words. And that's God's estimation. We see that kind of language used with regards to Job. Now, God doesn't use those words to Job. We get those words, right? He, we find out what God says about Job, not, not Job himself. But here, God uses that kind of language more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Moses is not owed that compliment, but God gives it nevertheless. As we see God incarnate in the life of Christ, and we see the way that He speaks about what He sees in people over in Matthew chapter 8 and in verse 10. Matthew chapter 8 and in verse 10 it says, Now when Jesus uh, heard this, and uh, incidentally this is um, the centurion's faith, and Jesus would often refer to faith among those who are outside of Israel, and this would be one of those occasions. And it says, When Jesus heard the faith that He showed, uh, He marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now, what is He marveling at? He's marveling that the centurion recognized that Jesus could do miracles from a distance marveling that, that the centurion had an appreciation for the authority that Jesus had. It really isn't the, the greatest show of faith you'll ever read about in Scripture. But it's enough for Jesus to say, your faith is great. Now, again, Jesus is not forced, and he's not, he doesn't owe that compliment to that centurion. The centurion certainly hasn't done anything that is uh, beyond imagination that, that would call the, the, sort of, um, the sort of lavish praise that Jesus has here. And yet Jesus is willing to be marveled and He's willing to express that to this man. And He's willing to express it not only to him but to everyone around 
who might hear that. And so just in so many ways, I see that though God has every right to say to us, no matter how good we do, He's got the right to say to us, you still could do better. And we could. We always could. And yet God is constantly saying, I am so pleased. I'm so pleased with how well you're doing. And so when we are obedient to Him, when we are doing well, God notices it. He points it out. He praises it. And, uh, and we need to follow that kind of pattern, I think, when we're looking at our brethren. Follow God's, God's lead on that. Well, I think uh, the Apostle Paul gives us a lot of examples as well. And so I want to look at a few of those. Paul, so very often, finds something good to say. I don't know if you've noticed that before, but as I'm reading through all of Paul's epistles and his time as it's recorded in Acts, Paul will do what he can to try to start off the conversation on the right foot. Acts chapter 17 is a passage I think we use very often to, to, to sort of illustrate that concept that when you come up upon somebody, don't try to start with an argument, right? Try to find something we agree on. And so he's, he comes up into all the midst of this uh, idolatry, really the seat of idolatry there in Athens. And it says that he stood in verse 22 of Acts 17. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are, a very, that you are very religious in all respects. And I don't think he's like mocking them when he says that. You know, I, I see you've got an interest in religious things. And you even got here an inscription uh, to an unknown God. And so I want to talk to you. The, one that, the God that you don't know, that's what I want to talk to you about. He doesn't come in just blasting them right out of the gate. He looks for an opportunity to say, here, here's something that I've observed about you. Here's some positive thing I can say, or at least neutral thing that I can say. And maybe we can work from there. Uh, to the things that he needs to say by way of uh, rebuke or instruction. I think that's the way Paul handles all of his letters, or at least most of them, maybe not all of them. But most of his letters, Paul has something positive to say. He usually starts it out that way. Even in the letters he's writing where he's really getting after people. I would say Romans is really getting after some people. He has some pretty hard things to say and particularly to the Jewish Christians. But notice how he starts the letter out there in chapter 1 and verse 8. It says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you in my prayers. I think... One of the things that we find with the Apostle Paul is he has some disappointments in his brethren, but it doesn't make him think they're not brethren anymore. He, has, he sees things that are going down a wrong path. Now, there are some brethren that are gone farther than others. Paul doesn't start out Galatians saying things are going well. No, things are going really badly in the churches of Galatia. But even there, he expresses some confidence in them. In chapter 5 and verse 10, he says, I, I, I believe you're going to do the right thing. I think you're going to listen to what I'm saying, and I think you're going to turn this around. And I don't think he's just blowing smoke. I wouldn't accuse Paul of that. I mean, I, I might accuse some folks I know, and maybe badly, maybe, maybe wrongly. 
uh, when they express that kind of confidence. Maybe I accuse them of being politicians or whatever. I wouldn't accuse Paul of that. He's always got that language. I have confidence in you, brothers. 1 Corinthians is a book in which Paul has a lot of disappointment to express. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we know he's about to get into all of the the problems, the bickering that's going on there in Corinth. But how does he start it out? I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in, confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful, through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When it comes to His brethren, Paul is not a pessimist. He says, I, I believe you're going to be there on the last day. I believe we're going to stand there together. God's going to confirm you in the end. Now, I don't believe what Paul is saying, like the Calvinists would say, that what, what he's saying is that no matter what they do, that'll happen. I think what Paul's saying there is, I believe you're going to listen. I believe you're going to do something. I think you're going to respond to the truth. And you're not going to continue down these paths that he would warn them against as he goes throughout that letter. As he gets to chapter 11, that we uh, mentioned in, in our Sunday morning lesson, Bible class hour. He says there in chapter 11 in verse 2, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now halfway through that chapter he's going to say, and this I do not praise you. And he's got some rebukes that go. But I think Paul tries. He tries to start out positively if it's possible. Right? If we can start out with, I think you're doing this really well. Let's start there. And usually... People, people think you're not out to get them so bad. If you start out by saying, look, I know you've got some good qualities. And here's some things that I believe that you're doing well. And so he starts out that way to the Corinthians there. That's really the pattern of the letters that Jesus writes, uh, kind of getting away from Paul for just a moment. But if you go over to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and just about every single church, he's got something good to say. There's one church there at Laodicea, and he's got nothing good to say to them, but in just about every other case. And look at the contrast. So just look at Ephesus to begin with. Chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1, the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance. And you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. I'll tell you what, that sounds like that's not a small thing, leaving your first love. That is a big deal. And yet Jesus is able to start out by saying, you're doing some things right. But you've lost a big part of who you are. And so he goes on and he tells them how big that is. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at the first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of, your, out of its place unless you repent. And so even people that sound like they're about to go off the rails, Jesus is saying, I'm not saying it's all wrong. 
you still have some things that are right that are going on there. And you go to the, the other churches, you, you take up Sardis, for instance, who he says is a dead church. And yet, what do we find? That there are those who have not yet sold their garments. There's something good. And it may be that there are churches where there's just nothing good to say. There's one of those here. But I got to say that seems like it's probably pretty rare where we can find nothing good to say about somebody or some group of people. I think, too, about Paul that he tries to avoid conflict if at all possible. He's not gunning for it. Paul has so many bold things to say and so many things that would seem to lead to conflict, and yet over and over we see him trying to avoid that, and particularly with the Corinthians, he uses that kind of language. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again, for if I cause you sorrow, then who makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And so his whole point is he's writing these letters and he's writing them in advance so that when he gets there, it can be a joyful occasion. Paul doesn't want to come in there knocking heads. He wants to come in there and, and enjoy the, the visit, as it were, to enjoy the fellowship and that time together. The things that he has to say here are not things that he either on the, in the first place doesn't want to say them, but if he has to say them, he'd rather say them now so that when he sees them face to face, there can be joy and gladness. And so Paul is not someone who heads down that path with any, with any joy in his heart. I think, too, about the way Paul persuades. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, when he starts talking about the collection, and one of the things he says to him is, I don't, want, I don't want you to do this by compulsion. I don't want you reaching in your pockets and going, well, if we don't, we know we're going to hear it from Paul when he gets here. It's no good. I don't want that. God doesn't want that. I want you to want to do this. And so maybe he does put some pressure on them. But it's pressure for them to want to do the right thing. Even more so when you come to the book of Philemon. I tell you what, that letter is just a masterpiece of persuasion. You want to know about how to talk to people to try to get them to do something that's right and maybe they're not inclined to do that. Paul goes through so many different ways of doing that and there's, there's really a whole lesson to be made of that, of, uh, of how Paul approaches Philemon. But particularly... In verse 8, he says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. There you get a little bit of that other bit. That's one of the things Paul does is he reminds him, I think, five times that he's a prisoner. And then this time, also I'm old. <laughs> so that's part of the persuasion that goes on there. Uh, this poor Paul over here is asking you to do this, brother. Over there in the lap of luxury a little bit, maybe, where Philemon is. But the other part there is he says, I'm not going to just tell you to do it. And I think that we've got to come to terms with brethren and, and, and with those who maybe we've got some right to make demands, 
but not lean on that too heavily. I think it's that way with our kids. The older our kids get, we need to tell them, look, this is going to work out best. It'd make me happy if you did this. It's going to be best for you. But I'm going to let you fail. I mean, if you want to fail, I'm going to let that happen. And I think that we need to leave kids room to do well and to do poorly. Now, they're going to get punishments if they do poorly. I'm not saying that. But leave the room for it. And, and we don't hardly leave room for brethren to, to have any wiggle room in our relationships. And I think Paul does. And I think that leaves more room for compliments when good is done. If your kids are only doing you know, what is absolutely necessary, in other words, they're only doing what they're afraid not to do, you know, they, they know that there's just there's immediate punishment coming every time. And, and I mean as they get older and they're old enough to have those kind of, that kind of forethought and so forth. You haven't really left your kids room to develop as people. And you haven't really left them room to show themselves uh, people who want to be obedient, who have obedience from the heart. I think Paul does leave that room. He, he, he leaves that opportunity. And so I think we need to do that. And I think that we need to offer it with expressions of confidence. Again, that's what Paul uses here with Philemon. I know you're going to do the right thing, Philemon. I know you're going to receive uh, your brother Onesimus. And I know you're going to send him back to me for my good benefit. I know you're going to have a room ready for me when I come. And that kind of positive and confident language whenever we can use it I think we need to use it I don't mean by any of that that we need to fake it that is what the Bible condemns and over in Proverbs chapter 29 in Proverbs chapter 29 and in verse 5 in no uncertain terms I think Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I tell you what, people love to, to heap that praise, the, the, the deceitfulness, the kisses of the enemy. Along with that chapter 29 and verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. By transgression, an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. There's, there's so much wrong. There's so much dishonesty. There's so much room for bitterness when we say things that aren't true. When we, when we praise to get in return and that's probably the biggest problem with flattery is usually when we're flattering is we're saying something so that we can get something back. And when we don't get the thing back, when the flattery doesn't work, we hate them twice as much as we did to start with. I mean, there's just so many problems that are introduced when you, when you fake give compliments. But when you give compliments because you want to lift your brother up, then that is its own reward. You see, that, that is the thing that you're wanting out of it. And so by giving the compliment, you're getting exactly what you want. I just wanted to encourage my brother. 
And I think about this in terms of are we looking for the opportunities? You know, are we looking for ways? Are we waiting to be overwhelmed and just so impressed? Or are we just looking for simple opportunities to, to give some kind of compliment? There are times when I think we do that. You say, let's say you get a, a young man comes and makes his first talk. How hard do we look to compliment that young man? Oh, we'll figure out a way. I mean, I remember my first talk. It, you would think I had preached the Sermon on the Mount. And I know I hadn't. It was not good. Now, my sister, when we got in the car, she was more honest and was not looking to compliment. And she said, it, Stephen, that was uh, 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 a good talk. Thanks. I probably needed that. But I tell you what, I needed those brethren coming up and saying, thank you. Thank you for putting forth that effort. Thank you for taking that time and studying. And, and they could tell that I'd put the time in or whatever. And so I appreciate that. And I appreciate the, the effort that brethren put in. But it's not just that young man that needs that. It's not just the guy who's getting up and doing something in front of everybody who needs that. It's the person that's doing something that nobody notices that needs that. It's, it's brethren who are doing something just by showing up sometimes who need the encouragement. Who are fighting maybe with uh, a husband who doesn't want them to be here. Who are just doing well to get the kids all into clothing and bathed and at a certain place at a certain time. They just need to be complimented and not broken down over something that's out of place. So we got to look for it sometimes. Sometimes it's not obvious. Sometimes there's so many areas where we could criticize. Well, let me just tell you, that's every day for every one of us. There's something that can be criticized. There's not a day goes by that we're not doing something that somebody could find something wrong with. And I'm telling you, when Abraham did well, he wasn't doing everything well. But God points and says, today he did well. And we need to be willing to look for those opportunities. And do it with no ulterior motive. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in verse 5. Paul is able to, as, as much as he is one who, who, who says positive things and looks for those things to say, he is able to say in, in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 5, we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul says, I, I mean, he's able to draw on credibility. And I think this is one of the reasons Paul is able to say some of the things he's able to say. Is he's made a habit of having this kind of relationship with people. And to the Corinthians, he was able to say, you know me, brethren. You know, I've never asked you for anything. I robbed other churches. And so you can't say, you know, you can't say Paul had ulterior motives. These other guys, they do. But I don't. I meant what I said to you. And I didn't look for anything in return from you. 
And so when you develop that kind of relationship, when you show people, I'm interested in you, and you show people, I, I want to lift you up and encourage you, then maybe they'll be ready to listen to you when you got to come and say, brother, i got a concern. Here's a problem that we need to talk about. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I think there's some brethren that look at that and say, see, that's what a friend will do. He'll jack you up. Well, he will. After he shows you that he's a friend. Friendships don't start on that basis. They don't start by somebody coming in and saying, let me tell you what's wrong with you. That's, that's not how they're built. They're built by people showing an interest and a care and a willingness to start from a place of trying to build you up and trying to show you that they, they think there are some things that you're doing well, some things that you're doing right. And so we need to show that kind of praise. We need to show it sincerely. We need to show it with no ulterior motive. And just by way of, I think, uh, and I think this is true biblically, I think you can see it as a pattern, that we need to be as specific as possible with our praise. From a preacher's standpoint, uh, Kevin, Stephen, y'all know this, when somebody comes up and says, good job, that doesn't really make the impact as somebody saying, you know, I appreciated this point you made. That shows me, hey, you're listening, and, and that something meant something to you rather than just that same old phrase coming out again and again. And so when I say be specific, when I say look for something, I don't mean just say something positive. I mean actually look for something positive to say. I appreciate this about you. And so I try to do that. When our, when, when our Bible class teacher who's teaching on Genesis right now, he, he uh, got done with a class recently, and I told him, I said, Brother, I thought, because he had to cover like six chapters in one class. And I said, I thought you did so well at boiling down each chapter to its most important point. And, and I was. I mean, I really did appreciate that. I wasn't, I wasn't faking that. But, but I wanted to be able to say something particular. This is what was really great about your lesson. And it just means a lot more. When you say to your kids, you know what? I appreciate how kind you were to your sister this morning. Well, that means more than just good job and I love you. But you're building them up in some specific way. And I think God does that. He says this, this right here, this was well done. And so we need to look for those opportunities and not just be general Pollyannas, but be people who are, who are specifically telling people when they're doing a good job and what they're doing a good job on. Everybody wants to hear it. And I think one of the places we do it least is with those we're closest to. We do it from, with people we're, we're at a distance with because we want to get closer with them. But once we get close, like maybe in the home, like the fellow who told his wife, she said, you never tell me you love me. He said, I told you the day where we got married. If it changes, I'll let you know. Well, she needs to hear that more often than that. And she needs to hear about the good job she's doing at home. And the husband needs to hear it. About, he's doing a good job providing. And your brothers and sisters in Christ need to hear it. I, I used to say I would never praise a group for showing up during a meeting. I wouldn't thank a group for showing up during a meeting because it's their responsibility to show up. I kind of felt that way. I don't know where I got that idea, but I just had it. And I think, you know, 
if, if God treated us that way, it would be a, a, a lot less pleasing relationship than what we do have. And I doubt Paul would have made the progress with people if he treated people that way. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. Well, granted, but those are good things. And they ought to be praised. And they ought to be complimented. And we ought to look for ways to show that. I think that's part of building each other up. We operate that way. And guess what? God created us that way. He created us to respond to those sorts of things. It's, it's in us. It's in the human brain. So, I hope that we'll appreciate that. There are those here this evening who may not be Christians. God not only says the door's open for you, and while He does say doing that, becoming a Christian, would certainly be no more than you're being asked to do, He says, if you do, not just everybody in this room, but angels in heaven would rejoice over it. Isn't that an impressive thought? Angels looking down at our feeble efforts to show God glory and rejoicing over it. I wonder if we appreciate how much joy God gets at our obedience. But you could make that joy possible this evening with your obedience. And so if there's anyone that needs to render obedience to God in any way that we can assist, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?